It sometimes seems to us like it's, it's more because some of the gospel accounts give the same story. But there are 19 individual cases of healing. Doesn't, it doesn't include the multitudes, the 10 lepers and groups and different things like that. But John told us that if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, from that, we have to conclude that there were more healing events, more individual stories of healing that could be told or could have been told. But therefore, we must also understand that the 19 cases that we have record of give us a complete picture of Jesus' healing ministry. Now, in those 19 cases of uh, individual cases of healing, 75% of them, healing was reserved in, in 75% of them, healing was received by the faith of the individual. So here's Jesus operating without measure, in the Spirit of God without measure. That means he had all the Holy Ghost that there was available to mankind in and on him when he was here in, in those three years of his earthly ministry. Yet it was necessary for faith to be exercised on the part of the individual in order for that healing to be manifested. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, And he went out from thence and he came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From, what, from whence hath this man these things? Where did he get this? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now notice that again. It's saying that wisdom, which was manifest and evident through the teaching of Jesus, wisdom enabled him to do mighty works or miracles by his hands. So the people in Nazareth have heard of Jesus' power. They've heard of Jesus' miracle working power. They've heard of his healing. But notice how they respond. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Now why would they need to be offended at him? What did Jesus do that offended them? They already have identified that he has wisdom, supernatural wisdom. They already recognize that that supernatural wisdom is the agent or the means whereby uh, healings and miracles have taken place. But since they grew up with him, they thought they had some kind of information that contradicted or countered the healings, works, and miracles Jesus had been doing. Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do, notice verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't. And he could there do no mighty work, save or except that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went around about their villages teaching. And he could there do no mighty work. He could there do no mighty work. Now, that implies to us that Jesus went to Nazareth with the intent of healing lepers, opening blind eyes, enabling cripples to walk, 
but he couldn't do it. It doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he couldn't do it. And the reason he couldn't do it was because of the unbelief of the people. So much so that he marveled at their unbelief. Now, if we want to get some more detail on this story, let's look at Luke's account. Luke chapter 4. It tells us about how Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape as a dove. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And after 40 days, the devil came and tempted him. And Jesus resisted that temptation by quoting the word, saying, it is written. And it tells us that after that, the angels came and ministered to him. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now, why would there be a fame of him going out through the region? He's either doing miracles, he's either healing the sick, or performing some kind of miraculous work, or else they're just marveling at the teaching itself. I'm inclined to think that the teaching would not have been emphasized or exalted except for the miracles and the supernatural works that it produced. So I'm thinking that the reason there was a fame going throughout all the region of Galilee was because of the things, the healings and the miracles which had already taken place. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now we know the people in Nazareth have heard of the fame of Jesus. The fame of Jesus that went round about throughout the region would encompass or include the city of Nazareth where he had been brought up, where he grew up as a child. So he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying these scriptures, what we know of is Isaiah 61. He said, These scriptures are talking about me. Well, everybody knows that the scriptures that he quoted and the things that he read from Again, from what we understand or know as Isaiah chapter 61, nobody argued that that was speaking about the Messiah. Everybody understood. Everybody that had grown up under the, uh, the temple teachings in any city, much less Nazareth, but in every city perhaps, they have been taught throughout the years that there were certain scriptures that were referring to the Messiah that would come, the Savior that would come. And Jesus picks the, the, the heart, if you will, the heart of the matter, the heart of the scriptures concerning the Messiah, preaches them or reads them and then says to them, this is talking about me. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Here the Bible tells us that Jesus is speaking words of wisdom. He's speaking words that they are, they are pleasant to hear. Good news about what God has for the people of Nazareth. 
this town, this hometown that Jesus grew up in, that he's now ministering to. But notice what they said. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Folks, what would have been the difference? What difference would the story be? Or how different would the story be? If the people, instead of saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Mark tells us even more. Aren't his brothers and sisters with us? Isn't Mary his mother? Don't we know him because of the way that he grew up among us? And folks, since Jesus was without sin, there, there could have been nobody in town, the town of Nazareth, that had anything evil or, or uh, bad to say about him. Jesus was just as sinless when he was a child as he was when he was 30. He was just as sinless growing up as a teenager than he was when he hung on the cross at age 33. What a different story this would have been if they had said, rather than is not this Joseph's son, which implies that they thought that he couldn't be the Messiah because they knew his father. One of the things that they'd been taught about the Messiah was that he would be born of a virgin. Well, Joseph and Mary certainly didn't look like that could apply to Jesus or it could be possible where Jesus was concerned. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? He can't be the Messiah because we know his parents. We know his family. His family doesn't seem to be any different to us than anybody else in town. But what a difference it would have made if they had said, well, we don't understand how this could be, but we've heard the miracles and the signs and the wonders that he's done in other places, so it must be something. If they had just stayed in neutral, they would have reaped the benefits of God's plan for their lives in their city. But they said, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. So Jesus has been to Capernaum before he came to Nazareth. Jesus has done signs and wonders and miracles in Capernaum prior to arriving in his own hometown, where it says the fame went abroad of Jesus throughout that region. It, has to, it must include Capernaum since he's saying that he's already been there. It must include miracles and healings that he did in the city of Capernaum and perhaps in other cities as well, but Capernaum's the one that Jesus identifies and specifies. He said, Surely you shall say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. In other words, she's a Gentile. She's not part of the people of Israel. God sent him to a Gentile widow to sustain him in this supernatural way. You remember when, Jesus, or when Elijah was directed by the Holy Ghost to go into Sarepta. He was told he'd find a widow woman there that would sustain him throughout the rest of the famine. The three and a half years, the end of the three and a half years of famine. He goes and he finds a woman that's gathering two sticks to make the last of the food that she has, the, the wine and the, or the oil and the, the meal for her and her son. And Elijah asks her to make him something first. And she does. 
she chooses to believe his words. And as a result, the oil, the oil bottles kept pouring oil and the meal barrel didn't waste. It kept going day after day after day until the end of the famine. Now that, again, wasn't through the hands of a Jewish woman, but through the hands of a Gentile woman. He goes further in verse 27 and says, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. You remember the story of Naaman? The Bible tells us that Naaman, who was a captain in, his, in the king's army, a close associate of the king, it tells us that he had a little slave girl living in his house. And he did everything he could to get rid of the leprosy that he had contracted and finally, this little slave girl says, why don't you go down to Israel and let the prophet heal you? Well, he didn't know anything about that. He certainly didn't know anything about God. He didn't know anything about Jewish history. But he follows the, the uh, suggestion of this little Jewish slave girl that's living in his house, serving him and his family. And so he goes down to where the prophet is, where Elisha is sitting, and with great pomp and circumstance, he arrives with a big entourage and he petitions Elisha for an audience and Elisha just simply says go wash off in the pool of Siloam or it wasn't, excuse me I'm confusing my healing stories here it wasn't the pool of Siloam it was the Jordan River he said go dip seven times in the Jordan River he wouldn't even come out to see Naaman well Naaman's a military guy and so the first and foremost thing military guys think of is force. And so he gets mad. And I'm sure he's thinking about taking the entourage, the military personnel that came with him, the company of soldiers, and just wiping Elisha out. But the little slave girl again, along with others in the company, said, what would it hurt to try? If he told you to do something hard, you would assume that that would bring healing results to your body. But what would it hurt to do just what he said? Well, they talked him into it. And so he went and dipped seven times in the Jordan River. And when he came out the seventh time, the leprosy was gone. Then he returned to where Elisha was, and boy, he's happy now. But he was upset the first time when he came because he thought he knew how this healing would come about. But he didn't. Well, Jesus relates that story along with the one with the widow woman from Sarepta. Because he's saying to the people, he knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're thinking that because they know his family, his mother and his father, that he couldn't qualify for the verses that he read to them in the synagogue about himself being the Messiah. They thought they knew something. There's a verse of scripture in Proverbs, chapter 21 I believe it is, that says this. It says, there is no wisdom against God. There is no wisdom against God. So in other words, whatever excuse we try to use for not obeying what God says to do, whatever, we excuse, whatever excuse we try to use to disobey what God's word says in our lives is worthless because there is no wisdom. There will never be any wisdom, any justification, any excuse, any good excuse, any truth that can stand against God. And so Jesus tells these people in Nazareth, he says, just like you might not be able to understand or wouldn't expect 
God to sustain Elijah by a widow woman and a little cruise of oil and a bottle of uh, a, a cruise of oil and a barrel of meal. And just like you wouldn't expect God to uh, heal Naaman, who was a Gentile and an enemy of Israel, God sometimes works differently than what you or I might think. Well, they seem to understand this. Verse 28, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. I guess when he pointed out that they didn't have all the understanding that they needed or couldn't explain why God worked sometimes the way that he did, I guess they took that to heart, took that personally to such a degree that they were willing to kill him over it. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. So what does Jesus do? Verse 31 says he goes back to Capernaum where he got results the first time. He came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Notice that. They were astonished with his doctrine because his word was with power. Notice they're not astonished at him for the display of power. They're astonished at his doctrine. Now, the reason that they could, would be astonished at his doctrine instead of astonished at him for performing miracles is that his doctrine had to tell them, his doctrine had to be that man has authority on the earth. Not just that he has authority on the earth, but that man has authority on the earth. We know that to be true from Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man after our own image and our own likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. The Bible makes it real clear that God created man for one purpose. And that was for him to have authority here on the earth. Well, Jesus taught that, obviously. Because they're amazed at his doctrine. They're shocked at the teaching. They've never heard anything like this before. They're shocked at the teaching that man has authority. And then Jesus demonstrates that authority by doing healing miracles and wonders. Jesus demonstrates that man has authority. How many times do we see in the, in the four Gospels where Jesus deflects the credit for some miracle or some great thing that took place? And the way that he deflected that credit was always the same. He'd always say, I'm not doing the works. It's my Father in me that's doing the works. Well, where we started, when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Bible says the Holy Ghost came upon him and landed, came from heaven like a bird would fly down from the sky and landed on him. And whatever it was that came down like a bird to land on him stayed upon him. And folks, that has to be true. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, Verses 5 through 8, it says, Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. He made himself of no reputation. In other words, he took off the glory that he had with the Father before the worlds came, worlds began. And he comes to the earth fashioned as a man, as a human being. So Jesus wasn't ministering healing power or doing miracles on the earth as the Son of God. He couldn't have. That's why it was so important for John to baptize him. Because when the Holy Ghost came down upon him, there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, if Jesus was the Son of God in power when he was here on the earth, what need would he have to be anointed? And even to go a step further, who can anoint God? 
But see, the Bible says Jesus emptied himself of all the, the power and the glory that he had and came to the earth to be and was fashioned and lived as a man. And when the anointing of the Holy Ghost came upon him, that's what started his ministry because now he's empowered by the Spirit of God to do the will of God to help others. But remember where we started also of the 19 individual cases of healing. 75% of them indicate that people were healed on their own faith. Now we've got a whole city, the city of Nazareth, that refuses to believe, that refuses to accept that Jesus is anointed with healing power and that they, through their words, exercise their authority to receive and take hold of the power of God that's available to them. Notice again where it tells us in Luke chapter 4 and beginning in verse 18. It tells us what Jesus preached. It tells us that he preached that he was anointed. He told that he was empowered to deliver those that were afflicted, to heal those that were sick, to bring recovering of sight to the blind. And he preached the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, folks, in the Old Testament, the acceptable year of the Lord was the year of Jubilee. It came around once every 50 years. And every 50th year, everybody's lost possessions were restored to them. If somebody sold a piece of ground, when the year of Jubilee came along, that, that ownership reverted back to the original. It was a restoration of all things. And Jesus says that the ministry of the Messiah... The Messiah coming, the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, makes every year the year of Jubilee. Just as Jesus restored to mankind his right standing in his place before God, that makes the year of Jubilee the year that you and I live in. Every year that you and I live in. Because the restoration of all things has come through Jesus. So back to verse 32, Jesus goes back to, this, to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? Notice they're, they're exalting the doctrine, the teaching that he's doing. This word, trans, uh, the Greek word that's translated word here in verse 36 is the word logos. It means communication. It means the word that was spoken. So they're when they're talking about the words that he speaks, they're talking about the teaching that he did. They're talking about the doctrine, just as several verses before. What a word or doctrine is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they came out. And the fame of him went out into every place in the country round about. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. 
Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. What's the difference in Capernaum and Nazareth? The only difference is Nazareth, Nazareth refused to believe. Nazareth refused to believe. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll start reading in, in verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he and, and Peter, James, and John had just come back from the mountain of transfiguration. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. That never was good. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he tears him. And he foams and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Remember what we read over in Mark chapter 6, verse 5? Speaking of Jesus, it says, and he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't, it says he couldn't. We know from Luke's account that he was sent there to do mighty works. Luke's account tells us that he was sent to open blind eyes and heal the crippled and cleanse the lepers to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's why he was sent to Nazareth just like he was sent to Capernaum, just like he was sent to every other city that he went into. But he was unable to do those works, unable to perform those miracles in the city of Nazareth because of their unbelief. Here it says the same thing about his disciples. I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. It implies that they tried and failed. And Jesus answered him. Notice Jesus answers him, not the disciples. This isn't a matter of Jesus turning to look at his disciples and says, What's wrong with you guys? Haven't you seen enough already to understand the power that's available? We know from other scriptures previous or prior to this, He's already de given them and de uh, delegated healing power over every sickness and disease and power to cast out devils to the disciples. But it's not working in this case. Well, Jesus knows immediately the only thing that can stop the power of God from working is unbelief. Well, whose unbelief is it? If Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what's wrong with you guys? Then we would have to understand and accept that it was their unbelief. But that's not who Jesus responds to. Jesus responds to the Father and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Notice he calls the Father without faith. He speaks of the Father as being part of a generation that is without faith. And he laments the fact that he's not going to be with them such a short period of time. Talking about the three years of his earthly ministry. He's saying, you guys better get this soon because I'm going to be out of here in not too long. I won't be able to be with you and keep teaching, to, teaching you these things over and over and over again. Well, what thing is he talking about? He's talking about the necessity to exercise faith to receive what God has. So he says, how long shall I suffer you, faithless generation? Bring him unto me. 
And they brought him to Jesus, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, Since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now notice what the father does. The father tries to throw it right back at Jesus. He says, Jesus, if you can do anything. And folks, that's where so much of the church world is today. They're looking for God to prove his power. Not as a response to faith, but to prove his power so that somebody can believe in it. But Jesus turns it right around back on him. He says, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe it. Now, it's hard to translate this into the King James from the Greek. But if you look at the Greek language, the wording that Jesus uses and the way that this uh, uh, sentence, Scripture, is structured, it shows that Jesus is asking him a question. In other words, when he says, when the Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus turns it right back to him and says, if I can. Really? If I can? He knows this Father has heard about him. He knows the reason that this Father has brought the child is because he's heard of the healings and the miracles and the great things that have taken place. This is not a question of what God can do. He's at least heard, whether he's ever witnessed it or not, we don't know. But he's at least heard that Jesus has done things just like this, maybe even greater things than this. And that's why he brought his son to him. So Jesus turns it back on him and says, if I can, implying a little bit of sarcasm here, this is not a matter of what I can do. The question is, what can you believe? Now, folks, think about that. He says all things are possible to him that he believes. It's never a question of God's power. Healing is never a question of God's power. It's always a matter of faith. So he says to the Father, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We see a transformation taking place in the Father before our very eyes. We know the Father was without faith when he brought his son to the disciples. Now we don't know if he started off with faith, but when he heard Jesus wasn't there and he was left with the disciples to help, that he got discouraged and released his faith or, or abandoned his faith at that point. That's possible. Or it was also possible that he came to, to Jesus not because he really believed in anything to happen, but he brought him to Jesus to see if anything would happen. Either way, he comes to a, pl a place of being without faith. And Jesus identifies that first and foremost. When the power of God doesn't work, the problem is never with the power. It's always with the faith or the lack of faith of the individual. So this guy is helpless. He's hopeless. Because he won't even take, Jesus won't even take the responsibility of the thing and say, well, yeah, I'm the son of God, so I'll do something here even though you don't believe. Now, folks, if the Son of God, Jesus, here on the earth was limited in what he could do and how he could do things based on the faith of the individuals that he was dealing with, then how much more is that going to be our case too? There's a lot of the church world that thinks the power of God has been done away with, the healing power of God specifically has been done away with because they don't see any healings taking place around them. 
Well, what's happened to the power of God unto healing? Has it gone away? Well, if Jesus was the healer then, he's still the healer now because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If it was ever God's will to heal in the Old Testament, then it's always God's will to heal because God says he's never changing. So what's happened to the healing power of God? Has it diminished? Has it disappeared? No, but to a great degree, faith in his healing power has. The problem is never with God's power. Therefore, it always has to be with the individual. But what are we to do with that or about that? Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If we find ourselves in a position of, of being in unbelief without faith, we can build faith. We can exercise our faith. We can grow our faith by hearing the word of God. And that's exactly what happens with this guy, and it happens almost immediately. Jesus says all things are possible to him that believes. The father cries out and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Notice what he did. He said that he believed. Now, folks, the Bible tells us that faith is of the heart. It tells us that if we believe in our heart and say with our mouths what we believe, what God's word has given us hope for, then we will have what we say. So this father, in complete unbelief, turns around 180 degrees by simply saying, Lord, I believe. Now, I doubt very seriously if that was a great level of belief. I doubt very seriously that it was anything closely associated with the people that Jesus uh, magnified and marveled at because of the greatness of their faith. It didn't approach anything like those stories. But he said something that put him in a position to receive. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, inasmuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Folks, I want you to also look with me to Isaiah chapter 55. I believe it's verse 11. Isaiah is speaking to the people of God, and he says on God's behalf, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Here's God saying, guaranteeing, declaring that his word was never without power, that whenever his word is returned to him, it always carries power to accomplish whatever the word spoken was sent to do. For example, he's saying, when my word Scriptures concerning healing return unto me. Now, how are they going to return unto him? He speaks the word. It becomes the truth of the scripture for us. But our job is to speak it back and speak it out loud. So when we speak the word of God concerning healing, scriptures concerning healing, when we speak those words, God's words, words of power, that power is then made available to accomplish in the thing, in this case, in the healing that we desire. It was sent to do a specific work. Every healing scripture in the Bible was sent to provide healing 
and health for you and me. And all it takes is for us to speak the word. Now, it doesn't guarantee we'll get instant results. It doesn't tell us it'll happen overnight or within a week or even within a month. But his word is never void of power when it returns to it. When we speak the word to him, we release the power of God to make a change in our flesh. When we speak the word to him, just as the Old Testament statute defines God as saying, as they have dealt with me, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them. Well, if we're speaking healing words back into the ears of God, then healing is always the result. We had a, an account, a, a testimony a week or two ago by somebody in the church that discovered at the early part of this lockdown situation that they had breast cancer. Well, you know, the medical community was kind of frozen in place looking for the coronavirus thing. And so there wasn't any immediate medical attention that was performed or, uh, or took place. But this individual, this lady knew what the word of God said. And so she chose to begin to speak God's word. She just began to confess healing and health for her body. And over a period of a couple of months, however long this lockdown thing has gone on now, in a period of a couple of months, she's cancer-free. Now, what made the change? She always believed in, in healing. She always believed in the work that Jesus did and that by his stripes we were healed. But when she specifically began to speak the word of God, concerning the healing that had been diagnosed, the cancer that had been diagnosed in her body. It made all the difference in the world and it caused that cancer to disappear. So shall my word be that goeth forth from my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It carries power on its way to earth and the power that it carries is the ability to create faith in the hearer. And then when the hearer, you and me, when we speak God's word back to him, it returns to God with power to accomplish the healing that is spoken over. If the people in Nazareth had instead of saying, is not this Joseph's son? Do we not know his brothers and sisters? If indeed they had said, or instead they had said, we don't understand all these things and how they could all fit together, but we believe. Then the lepers would have been cleansed in Nazareth just like they were in other places. The lame would have walked just like in other places. The blind eyes would have been opened and recovering of sight would have come to the blind. All the blessings and all the things that Jesus was anointed to bring to them would have taken place if they had simply believed, simply chosen, simply decided. Because faith is a decision, folks. Faith is not a feeling and it never will be a feeling. Faith is a decision to accept God's word as true no matter what things look like or how we may feel to the contrary. If the people in Nazareth had spoken, chosen to speak, to say, well, we don't understand everything, but we've heard about what he's done in Capernaum, so he must be telling us the truth. They would have had a citywide revival. They would have experienced the power of God just like Capernaum did. Capernaum was not a favorite place of God's. It wasn't a favorite place for Jesus to be. In fact, Later on in Jesus' ministry, he cursed Capernaum and said that if the signs and wonders and miracles that were done in the city of Capernaum had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities would not have been destroyed. But they got to where they were looking for the show, I guess, rather than allowing it to bring them and pointing in, in the direction of God 
to make a change in their life in a number of ways. When we speak God's word, no matter what it looks like, no matter what we've been told, no matter what somebody else says, when we speak God's word, it releases the power to affect the change that it was sent to us to accomplish. When we speak God's healing scriptures, healing words back to him, it releases the power of God to restore us to divine health. It's all about what we say. It's all about what we say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that is in your word. Lord, your word says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. So we choose, no matter what situation we're facing, no matter what diagnosis has been made, we choose to say, even as your word declares, we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, that the power of God is released into our bodies to effect a healing and a cure in us from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. We declare, we say, we choose to believe that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Now, Father, the words of faith have been spoken, so there's nothing left for us but to praise you for the answer. And we thank you, Lord, that as we speak your praise, as we sing your praises unto you, as we enter into thanksgiving and a heart of gratitude for the things that the word has made available to us and promised to us and guaranteed to us, we thank you, Father, that you raise us up. We bless you, Holy Father. We magnify your holy name. We magnify the name of Jesus. Amen.